Hi there, I'm Logan Medish, your host, and my guest today has made it one of his life's missions to eliminate the phrase KyberPass Firearms from our lexicon. Hope you enjoy the show. My guest on today's episode of the High Caliber History Podcast is Miles Vining. He is the co-founder of Law Report in 2017, which was founded due to an observed knowledge gap in the small arms research field when it came to understanding numerous aspects of small arms and light weapons in the Middle East, North Africa, and Central Asian regions around the world. Miles, welcome to the High Caliber History Podcast. Hey, Logan, what's up? What's happening, man? Hey, yeah, good to hear from you. I, I know you're you're all over the place, literally all over the world a lot. Um, so it's it's good that we've got some time to sit down and, and chat about some things. Um, so let's let's get right into this. Uh, where where did your desire for arms research come from? You know, I mean, obviously we we mentioned. Uh, you know, that you, you observed a, a knowledge gap, but it, it takes a certain type of person to actively dive deep into the content and do the research. So uh, where, where, did, where did your desire for arms research come from? Well, in my desire for my interest in small arms uh, began at an early age um, as a child interested in guns and ammo and stuff like that. And it kind of you know, kind of growing up, I was always fascinated by different things. Um, I think it really, I think it really kicked off in Burma when I grew up there as a child. And I would see all these guard posts around the city and I would go to them and, you know, I'd try to make it a little game as a teenager. And I would try to like, you know, see their M16 or their M1 carbine or their SKS. And I would try to get their serial numbers or I would try to take pictures of the rifles and stuff like that. And it became this little competition. It's like, how far could I push it? Like, you know, could I get a guard to show me his gun? Could I get him to disassemble it? You know, could I, could I be the one disassembling it? Could I take pictures of it? And I, it was kind of, you know, looking back on it now, it was kind of like, it was, it's kind of like the basis of what, of what we do today. But back then, I, I, it was really just a game to me to see how much I could do with it. And it was, right. a, and you, as a teenager, you're learning about, you know, what's an M16 and what's an M1 carbine. And you're presented with these questions of how did an M1 carbine get into Yangon, Burma? What's it, you know, what's an Italian TZ45 doing in Yangon, Burma? And you're figuring this stuff out. And that's what sort of, that leads into Silao Report because it sort of gets into the questions of there's the technical side of finding out like, you know, what these guns are and technically exactly what model and variant and production year they are. And then there is um, the more geopolitical side and the historical uh, puzzle piece of, well, how did this gun get here? You know, and it's and and I was just saying this, you know, yesterday um, was talking with a buddy. But I mean, firearms are things that, you know, we can hold. You can actually pick up an M1 carbine and, you know, disassemble it and you can actually feel it. You can actually shoot it if you want to. Right. I mean, you can't. It's hard to do that with a Sherman tank or it's hard to do that. with. <laughs> Right. And I mean, it's like you can't like you can't pick up a tiger tank in your hands and be like, holy crap, this was this German masterpiece from the Second World War that, you know, uh, all, like all, could have helped turn the tide against the allies. And it's like you can't do that. You can go to a museum, right. observe it. You can see it in pictures. You know, if you're rich enough, I'm sure you could buy a tiger tank, but you can't hold it in your hands. Firearms right. are like tangible historical objects that are. You know, we can actually pick these up and be like, man, this is what it was like to like, you know, hold this. It doesn't like 50 years ago, 100 years ago. It doesn't matter. So and that's part right. of the aspect of, I don't know, fire of an interest in firearms that comes with it. Sure. Yeah. Yeah. We're not uh, we're not all fortunate enough to to be Alan Coors or Reed Knight and have our own personal tank collection. But uh, wouldn't wouldn't that be nice? Uh, <laughs> um, but it, it, it brings me back because I think that's it's fascinating. You were talking about, you know, uh, growing up in, in Burma and, you know, taking pictures of the weapons and stuff like that. And I I, I still do that. You know, I was I was in France uh, a year ago and was taking pictures of the police and the guards outside, uh, you know, the Palace of Versailles and, and in front of the Louvre and all that stuff. And, and, you know, they're giving me side eye, you know, as I'm trying to get closer to get better pictures and stuff. And that's, that's just, uh, that's, that's funny. You're like, yeah, I was doing that as a kid. And I'm like, you know, I, I still do that. <laughs> 
Um, so, so growing up in, in Burma, what was, what was that like? I, I, it wasn't, it wasn't the sort of most exotic thing in the world. I mean, it's a military dictatorship and I went to an international school. So I wasn't totally, um, I wasn't totally, I, I wasn't like, I wasn't living in, um, in a hut, you know, running around in the jungle with Mowgli as my buddy kind of thing. Um, right. but it was, it was a, it was a, it was a very I was, I was blessed with that experience because it really just showed me another, how another part of the world worked in terms of, you know, how, uh, how bad, um, some countries can have it in terms of, uh, political speaking, in terms of like having, being in a military dictatorship and, you know, right. uh, student riots just get shot down and the monks come out and then they get shot down and stuff like that happening. Um, but it was really, impo- it was really key to my interest in small arms because it, it was like, it was almost like a Petri dish, like presented in front of me. It's like, no, this is the actual, you know, instead of like reading about, Oh, well, these guns were used by these guys. And now they're, now we can see them in pictures on the internet. It was like, no, this is that one carbine right down the street. That's, you know, this Burmese uh, policeman is actually holding in his hand. It's like, this was, it was a very tangible, visceral, like, yeah, no, this is happening. This is history. This is the result of history happening right in front of me kind of thing. Um, I would say it was very useful in that sense. Well, that's that's neat. I don't know that I knew that you you lived in Burma. So that's uh, finding out something new every day. <laughs> um, uh, so uh, the next thing, the next question is: you uh, quite literally have been into museum collections literally all over the world. Uh, you know, you and I have have talked about different museums and collections that we've been to, and uh, you know, I've seen some of the stuff you've you've put up in your your blog posts and. And on different sites, and uh, I am super jealous of some of the collections that you've managed to to see around the world. Um, so this this is probably a, a hard one, but if you had to pick a favorite museum uh, that you've been in uh, anywhere in the world, what would it be, and and why? Oh wow, hands down the pattern room, hands down, absolutely hands down the pattern. Really? Room. Yeah, thousand percent. Um, the pattern room, which is now currently known as the National Firearms Center in Leeds, which I think you, you're just talking to Jonathan Ferguson about, right? Yep, he, yep, yep. He, uh, he's, he's another guest on here as well. Yep. Yeah, yeah. So the pat, and I think the pattern room because, um, it it's the only coll- it's the only collection with the longest history of of the longest history of purposely adding items to that collection for the reason of, you know, sort of technical firearms study and technical firearms um, research because, and, 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 and what that, what that produces is a, you know, it produces a, a, a room with samples uh, with well curated samples of almost everything. Right. Um, and I mean, we look at other collections, right? I mean, we look at, um, let's say the Marine Corps museum and we look at, okay, like, well, well, what was the point of this collection? Well, the Marine Corps museum's collection really was just the result of the, the basic school, the officer training school that the Marine Corps had. And was really the result of, you know, they had a bunch of, you know, it really served the, the basic school as like, these are the examples of enemy guns overseas. Like, you know, officers could come in and check them out and stuff. And then someone was like, no, 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 wait, hold on. We need to make a, you know, we need to put this in a museum collection. Um, right. And then it became that. And, or if we look at, you know, maybe the NRA museum, it's like the NRA museum has what, how long has NRA museum existed for? hundred years. They've been, a, they've been around since 1935. And that collection was really an, uh, an outgrowth of the guns that had come in from manufacturers as test samples for American Rifleman magazine, uh, you know, and, and the companies told them, you know, just keep it. And so eventually they, they amassed enough of them were like, well, that this is kind of a museum collection, you know, <laughs> so it was very accidental. It wasn't, Hey, let's set out to create a museum about X uh, and then build a collection around it. It was that they had the collection and built the museum around it. Yeah. And I think, I think all these collections, they sort of, it's, it's the same, it's the same templates that they have, but let right. me say, let me add, let me say, and like, if you want to, like, maybe if you want to correct me or incorrect me at the NRA museum, 
is really more interested and more focused on sort of the story of small arms of civilian ownership in the United States. Um, would that, yes. what's up? Uh, yes, I, I would say that's, that's fairly accurate. You know, their, their goal, the, the theme that, you know, they say is it's firearms freedom in the American experience is, is the theme of that. And uh, yeah, they're they're doing a, a a decent job of telling you know the the whole story of civilian firearms ownership. It also, you know, there 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 is a lot of warfare sprinkled in there um, as well. But uh, I, I think yeah, the the theme that it really comes down to um, is the the civilian ownership, which makes sense given that it's the NRA museum. Yeah, where and when the warfare does come involved, it has to do with the American experience, like American soldiers or GIs fighting against Germans in you know World War One. Yes, or exactly, yeah. exactly. Yeah, you know, there's a diorama of the guys in the World War One trenches and the you know and, and the guys in a, you know a blown out building in in Saint Lo and you know in Normandy uh, for D Day. But yes, it is. It is focused on the American experience. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So, so the reason why I said the reason why I like uh, the Leeds collection, and, and this is why I say is that like the Leeds collection was was purpose was was essentially was was uh, you know part of Britain's intelligence gathering efforts to find out like what is everyone across the world using in terms of small arms and light weapons, right? So, right. Like, so there isn't so so there isn't that sort of there isn't that sort of twist of like you know well it has to be within the british experience or who are who are our enemies or something like that but it's like right what exists out there throughout the entire world so that's why you know you have you have weapons in there you have small arms in there of areas that have nothing to do with any conflict that britain is involved in because it's from that sort of curator's standpoint of we need everything we need to know what's out there like what are mm-hmm. the evolving technologies that are out there? We need one of them. And, you know, they would go out and, you know, Herbie Woodard was the famous curator of the pattern room at Enfield for a while. And, you know, he would go out there and he would like, it, it was his job as like a British government employee to be like, I need one of this, one of this. Oh, this is a new thing happening over here. All right, let me get one of those. Oh, this is something happening. Let me get one of those. Oh, this conflict is happening. We need to be aware of what's happening in that conflict. Okay. Get me one of the, get me one of the new things from over there. And so you have right. And the reason why you have this awesome collection of all this stuff, and it's like straight from the standpoint of like a technical firearms perspective of we need to know what else is out there. And as a result, that collection is just astounding. It's insane. And and, and here's the thing is if you're, it fits the profile, right? If you're interested in sort of firearms technology, it's like, that's where you, that's where you want to be. If you're interested in, you know, the, the firearm in the American historical experience, it's like, yeah, you need to head over to the, to the, to, you know, the NRA museum kind of thing. Um, right. So that, but that's why, I mean, in terms of collections, I think that's why I, I praise the NFC over anything. Um, sure. In that light. Right. Sure. Yeah. And that's, you know, talking about why they collect what they collect and, you know, cause they, they need to know what's going on. And, you know, looking at that from, from my museum background, you know, that's, that's, they have a scope of collections and they know what fits into their scope of collections. Now, granted, they have a very wide scope of collections, um, but still they know what their scope is. It's, we need to know what's going on in these conflicts and, and, and to have something uh, that relates to it as opposed to, well, our scope is we collect guns and we just want all the guns, uh, you know, and, uh, I, we talked. There's nothing wrong with having, if someone were to start a museum or a gun collection and be like, my scope is guns and I collect guns. It's like, dude, exactly. To you, man. Nothing wrong with that. <laughs> Exactly. Like I, I think the the closest thing we probably have to that is uh, you. you know, I'm sure you've heard of him. Is that that guy Dragon Man out west who's got his own collection and he just he collects guns. He's just got everything because he likes having everything. And yeah, exactly. and there's nothing wrong with that. But but from a museum standpoint and a curation standpoint, to literally bring in anything and everything, it's just not sustainable. You know, yeah. it's. Yeah. It, it's just, it's just not doable. It's, it's noble. Uh, and, and I love the idea of, you know, we need all the things, you that know, but the you know, it's like, right. You know, like what do you, you know, what do you collect? Yes. 
you know, <laughs> you know, and that's, I mean, that's the dream, right? You know, that's, that's the dream to go to, you know, like Rock Island auction company and buy everything in the catalog from all three days. Cause that's what I collect. I collect that catalog, but, <laughs> uh, you know, that would be great, but, um, but you got to have a scope of collections and, and the pattern room has a scope uh, broad though it may be, but it has created, like you said, a, a really remarkable collection. Um, and, and I'm glad you picked that one. Cause I, I, I know you've, you've been to some really cool, really amazing collections and that's one that doesn't necessarily get it, get its due. Um, so that's very cool. Yeah. And you know, it's, yeah. And it's, uh, yeah, no, it's a great, it's a great collection, man. If there's researchers out there that want it, that are trying to get into a thing, you need to try your darndest to get into the patent room. Um, it's worth, worthy of the effort. Absolutely. Absolutely. It's, it's definitely one of those, those bucket list things for, for a gun researcher. Um, so, you know, you've, you've also worked, you know, obviously you've worked with museum collections in what you do, but a lot of what you do also, and you can correct me if I'm wrong, but I think a lot of what you do um, is, is also dependent on private collectors and providing you access to stuff that just isn't in a museum. Um, and have you found that it's been easier to work with private collectors or work with museums, you know, cause I mean, there's kind of pros and cons to both, you know, the private collectors might be a little like, well, why do you want to know what I have? You know, whereas the museums, you know, it's all right, well, you can come in, but you got to abide by these rules or so what, what's, what's been your experience with working with those two different systems? Um, yeah, I mean, I think as you say, there's pros and cons to both. Um, the museums, like it, the public versus a private museum, like the, pu- I think, I think, I think it's cooler. It's, it's cooler working with the public museums because they have that attitude of we, we're, you know, we're a publicly funded collection. It's like, we're, we're, that's actually our mission statement is to sort of get knowledge, get this stuff out and be open for researchers. And that is like right. so refreshing to see that, especially at Springfield Armory, especially at, um, uh, and are at, not at a U.S. at the Marine Corps Museum. It's so refreshing to be right. among that of like, you know, we exist for the public. Like we, like the public pays our bills, so we are open up, and that's like really cool um, to have that sort of attitude. Whereas you're right, yeah, with the private collections, you have so many more restrictions with collectors being like, well, you can publish this, but don't, you know, don't put my name on it, or you know, don't do this, or don't have the location or stuff like that, which is which. Right which is darn important for them because, you know, some of these collectors, it's like, they've got like multi-million dollar collections and they don't really want people knowing where all the maxims in the United States are located at this random address in Alabama. It's like, they don't really need the rest of, you know, the the burglars in the U S to, to know that point, you know? So it's like, uh, it's, it's not, it's not wise to do that. Um, right. And it is a huge element of trust in that kind of thing. Um, absolutely. Yeah. And then the, the, the private collections are like, it's, it's interesting working with collectors cause they're so, cause what you get, what sometimes what you get, it, you have to know what you're getting. Right. And sometimes right. a private collector, it's like the, the pieces that they have are, are sometimes not in the best form that they should be because mm-hmm. of the result from the sort of commercial experience, right? Whereas if you look at, like, you look at Springfield Armory, okay? Like Springfield Armory and the Springfield Army Museum, it's like, yeah, these are the trials guns that were brought over, you know, used in these Springfield Army trials or whatever year from, and they were brought over from FN or Browning or something. And this is it. Right. They're in their prime condition because they came here for the trials and they stayed here, you know? Um, whereas the private collectors... They, the guns that they have and the collections that they have, like they sometimes they've been like altered because they've been on that commercial market and because, well, I got it from this and they changed out the compensator and this and this. And it's like you're not dealing with the pristine original piece. You're dealing with like the imported commercialized version of that piece. Um, and you have to realize that. And that's so very important to take into account, especially as like firearms researcher where it's like you want to find out what was the original thing and because everything else is going to be based off of that original thing and 
sometimes that doesn't help to find like, yeah, this is the piece. This is a FAL. This is an Egyptian FAL variant. This is an Egyptian FN49 variant. Um, but, you know, it was imported by Sentry and Sentry added these to their guns to make them legal in the U.S. And da, 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 da. And it's like, well, man, this isn't the original. It's like you're always aiming the original kind of thing. Right. Yeah. You know, I mean, unless unless and there are certainly collectors out there like this that, you know, their their thing is collecting safe queens. You know, it's new in box and, you know, don't turn the cylinder. We don't want a drag line. You know, it's it's a safe queen unless unless you're that kind of collector. And most collectors, I think, probably aren't. I know I'm not. You know, it's we we like these things because we want to take them out and use them. You know, they're 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 guns. They're meant to be shot, you know, Uh, and, you know, Springfield Armory's got some amazing uh, test guns in in their collection from different trials in the early 20th century. And they're amazing pieces. But uh, Alex McKenzie, the curator up there, you're not taking them out and, and shooting them you know, over his dead body. Uh, And that's, uh, and that's where you have a a different access with the private collectors is that, you know, they're, they're willing to let, let you take stuff out and and shoot it uh, at times. Once you've built up that relationship of, of trust as, as you had mentioned before. Yeah, no, absolutely. Um, Sure. So with your study uh, primarily focusing, you know, Central Asia, North Africa, Middle East, um, there are a lot, I I think anyway, and you can correct me if I'm wrong about this. I think there's probably a lot of misconceptions by people about what it is that you do and, and why you're focusing on these types of firearms and uh, you know, you, you guys hold very true to your, your region with what you do. And, you know, your, your logos have uh, different language script on them. And uh, in, in this uh, often untrusting world over here, you know, people see stuff like that and, uh, Oh, us, well, why are you studying a bunch of terrorist guns and, and things like that? And uh, I'm sure that's probably a huge pet peeve of yours. Uh, so what's, what is, uh, you know, what's a big misconception that people have about what you're studying over there and why? You know, it's, it's, it's really interesting you ask that because every, like, all, like everything that, we're, that we do involves some level of conception, either misconception or proper conception or even down right. to like, names. Like what is something called? It's like, well, this is why we research this stuff because people don't even know what like, these things are named half the time. And, it, and even in that perception is what you're talking about. Like everyone, like everyone I run into in the Middle East or in Afghanistan, like they all think I'm a spy. Like that's, a, <laughs> that's a conception I'm dealing with over there. And then, that's funny. Well, yeah. And that, that's something I'll never be able to get away from. It's like, Oh, like you're white, you're young, you know, like, you know, a little bit of Arabic and Pashto and Dari. It's like, yeah, fucking spy CIA spy, like get out of my face, you know? So that's, that's an issue I have to deal with um, on top of everything else. And then that's funny. Cause I would have never, uh, that just, that never crossed my mind, but yeah, that big, I guess just because I know you and I'm like, I don't look at it and be like miles vining international spy, you know? <laughs> yeah, exactly. So uh, sorry. I uh, Go ahead. Um, but, but yeah. And I mean, that's another point though. And I wanted to bring this up in talking about collections because the thing is in the Middle East and Central Asia, when you talk about like small arms are part of the defense industries of a lot of these countries and the defense industries of these countries are national secrets. Um, it doesn't matter whether you're in, you know, Jordan or Egypt or Iraq. And, you know, if you, if you ask about small arms production, it's like we have, we really have this like, we really have this sort of um, privileged, leisurely approach to small arms research in the United States and Europe, where we can actually, you know, get into depth about a lot of these small arms. And, you know, to the extent that we have whole and whole industry about, you know, the historical small arms study, study of historical small arms that doesn't exist in the Middle East. Small arms are a na- are an issue of national security. It's as if uh-huh. we want you were poking around in the u.s asking about like nuke production or something i don't know it's a totally it's a totally different world i mean in egypt for example like i went to all these egyptian museums i went to museums in egypt um in alexandria in cairo in el alamein i went to the egyptian air force museum i went to the egyptian el alamein 
Memorial Museum. I went to the Egyptian October War, October 1973 War Museum. And these are all ran by the Egyptian Ministry of Defense. And the whole attitude there, talk about collections. Like there is no getting into some of these collections uh, at these museums because the whole museum is set up in a way that it's like, come here, you get the Egyptian Ministry of Defense spiel on what happened at El Alamein, on what happened with the history of the Egyptian Air Force, on what happened, you know, in October 1973. Um, you get that, you get that spiel, and you go and you go out and you leave, and that's it. There, there is right. no, there is no, I, there's no idea, there's no concept of, you know, free back and forth discussion and talking about like history and interpretive history and like, well, what happened and let's break it apart. And what are the different views on this historical event? Well, this guy says a, and this guy over here says B and, you know, well, recent research has come to light that shows that, you know, this might have not been the case. And there's none of that. There's, there's the Egyptian ministry of defense view on what happened on the October, in the October, 1973, you know, crossing of the Suez canal. And that is it. In fact, any other, <laughs> other discourse of what happened is actually wrong, categorically wrong. And we are right and you are wrong. Okay. And it's this very diabolical look at that kind of thing. And and that goes into some like, well, some of the nation states within the Middle East and looking at this stuff. And I mean, for example, with my book that was recently published into Hellman with the Walking Dead, where I wrote about my experiences in the Marine Corps Infantry, I have a very I have a very close um uh, Arab friend in the Middle East who actually ordered it and he was reading it and he he actually was sending me, you know, he's critiquing it and he was sending me messages and he was like, holy crap, you're bad mouthing officers. Like you're saying how all these officers are pieces of crap and stuff uh, in the Marine Corps. And I was like, yeah, well, I have my first amendment and I have my views of the experience. And some of these guys like got people killed. So I don't, I don't feel bad about bad mouthing some of these people. And he was like, you never do that in the Middle East. You would never, ever, ever do that because it's that hierarchy kind of thing. It's like, no, there, there isn't this free flowing train of thought, right? So but where I want to um, get back into that and theories of like conception and misconceptions, like trying to get into some of these museums and being like, hey, you know, can I, you know, see some of the, can I get some of the guns out from behind glass? Can I see some of this? Can I see some of that? It's like, no, you can't. No, you can see the you can see the view that we have of the conflict, and that's it. Um, and that's and that's kind of that, but that's side kind of the Middle Eastern side of things, the Arab side of right. aspects of what we're looking at. Um, and then it's interesting that you ask, like, oh, like, what are you doing studying these this terrorist language or something? And it's like, I I, I kind of thought there might be some of that criticism when I started Silaw when I started Silaw Report with Haracha Hyrapet in 2017. I thought there would be some of that, um, but in reality, it's like it kind of it, it's like Silla Report just has turned into this natural filter of you know mm-hmm. the people that have that opinion. They just they just keep either keep their opinion to themselves or they just see our stuff and then they just look elsewhere. And then the people that and it's kind of like it, it it like the people that are genuinely interested and genuinely motivated by the stuff that we do they rise to the top and they get in touch with us and we hear more opinions from them. And the people that don't disagree or like think I uh, have that kind of attitude. It's like, I just don't hear from them, which is great. Right. And it's not, it's, you know, it's fantastic because the only people who are contacting us are, are a lot of times we get people who are like, Holy crap. Like, you know, I served in Afghanistan or I served in Iraq or I was a contractor there, or I'm a historical student in the U S or I'm from the region. It's like, what? wow, no one else is doing what you're doing. Like, I'm like, I'm all about that kind of thing. And it's like, cool, man. We'll want to get in touch with those kinds of people. So it's weird. Like like the people who have that, like that sort of like, ah, kind of thing. It's like, I just don't hear from them. They just, I don't know. I bet they're out there. I just don't, I just don't hear from them. Right. Thankfully they just keep on scrolling, which, which like you said, that's, that's a very good thing. And I, I'm actually surprised to hear that. I, I mean, I'm delighted to hear that, you know, you, you guys aren't uh, getting a bunch of flack and they're not, you know, spamming your inboxes with stuff like that. But I'm, that gives me a little bit of hope that, <laughs> that they're, that they're just kind of ignoring uh, what, what they uh, may not agree with, uh, or, you know, in, in their worldview and, and moving on. That's, and I think that the fact that there is so much acceptance of what you guys are doing and trying to understand these small arms. I mean, I think that's, that's fascinating because 
you know, the idea that a research organization like yours exists is is awesome because you know there there is in a lot of ways uh, a, a stigma around what goes on over there. But I'm glad to see that it doesn't spill over uh, into the world of pure research and, and education, which is what you guys are, are trying to do. It's, you know, it, it's, it's not about any kind of indoctrination. It's just about pure education with, with the research on, uh, on these weapons. And I'm, I'm delighted that it is very well received and, and that you guys have been doing so well with it. Well, thank you, man. And, and, you know, from the whole team, and it is a team effort. It's not me at the helm kind of thing. Um, it's we have a whole team of guys and primary researchers and, you know, Arabs and Israelis and everyone, Afghans and everyone who's working together on this kind of stuff and people who see what we're interested in. And they sort of come out, come out of the woodwork and we attract people who are into it kind of deal. But, yeah. Right. So there's uh, there's one term that uh, I, I think we should address because. I'm sure it's probably a pet peeve of yours, but uh, there's a lot of people that talk about, you know, the, these Kyber Pass guns, uh, and and they assume that they are these incredibly crudely made, often unsafe uh, types of firearms that that come out of you know the, that region in general, and they all kind of get lumped together. Uh, as this junk that they call Kyber Pass guns. Uh, do you, you want to touch on that and kind of put that misnomer to, to rest? So, yeah. So first of all, um, so first of all, I'm sort of on a personal crusade to get that term like revoked from the English language. Um, uh-huh. Primarily because the term uh, the Kyber Pass is is really really just refers to a single um um a mountainous valley between Afghanistan and Pakistan that starts at the Torkham uh border crossing in Pakistan and, and then goes over there and it's it's annoying to me because it's like all these guns come from the the uh the province, the region of Khyber Pakhtunkhwa, which was previously known as the federally administered tribal areas in Pakistan. And it's kind of like, to me, it's kind of like, dude, like give credit where credit's due, man. Like they come out of villages like Dara and some other villages around there and they come from this province. It's like, I'd rather, I'd rather the credit go towards the province that they come from, you know, the areas that they come from instead of this weird misnomer of Khyber Pass. So that's where that comes from. But, but the guns from this region are so, they, they're, they're the sort of personification of Silah Report because they are so fascinating and intricately linked to everything else happening. They've got, they've got like all the checkboxes, right? They're indigenously produced or assembled. Um, they have historical connection. They've been going on for over a hundred years. Um, mm-hmm. they've, been, they've existed for that time. They are still being churned out today. They are, they are, we, they are intricately weaved in with the historic, with the history of the region between Afghanistan and Pakistan and, uh, the English presence there as well. And then the American presence in the two thousands and then the Soviet presence in the 1980s and then all this stuff going in between. Um, and they are, they're just so fascinating to study for a variety of reasons. And I mean, originally it, the, the cottage industry that became um, what is now the gun making industries in Dar Adamchel and in Khyber Pakhtunkhwa and outside of Peshawar today began a hundred years ago when the British really started instituting some very strict gun control. And what, what's cool about this is that it doesn't happen then either. Like the, the tradition of gun making and the tradition of firearms assembly and craft assembly and craft production, you know, goes back to the 1800s where you have the assembly. Uh, the assembly and production of uh, flintlocks and matchlocks and percussion rifles um, as, you know, the various other powers are, are fighting and stuff like that. And, you know, you go back to, um, you go back, back to 1840, 1841 of the first Anglo Afghan war, where the British were chased out of Kabul and slaughtered almost to a man. Um, and you have, you actually have this really, you actually have a really competent, um, Afghan force made up of Tajiks and Pashtun tribes that um, um, 
were able to rout this British force and their the superiority of their muskets at the time is undeniable. I mean, we have British accounts of, you know, picking out officers, of being shot at from over 300 meters um, it, with successful and accurate small arms fire. You know, you have so you have this tradition of, you know, marksmanship that goes back into then. And right. whether or not, and, and here's the thing is that there's all, and this is what comes with all these misconceptions and you, know, and you see like, oh, like, like Pashtun tribesmen are like super, like they're great marksmen. They even take, you know, they even exist to today. You know, it's uh, like, I'll, I'll debate that. And it's like, yeah, there's some good Pashtun marksmen today. Like there's good Taliban sharpshooters who are fighting in Afghanistan. And there's also a lot that suck. You know, it's like there isn't this, and this goes into the whole history of the region too. And that, you know, why well, I always hear that from, you know, Americans and, and folks who they, they, it's, it's, it's like the biggest cop out argument I hear of, well, we should just pull out of the region. Like they've been fighting for like thousands of years and, you know, we're like, you know, there's nothing we can do to end that. And it's like, dude, that's the dumbest cop out argument I've ever seen. It's like, well, first of all, all that, well, all that, that history of fighting, it's not, this isn't generational. It's like, you know, you know, dad goes to war and he's like, he's a fantastic warrior. And then he comes back and, you know, he births me. And it's like, well, that like the the his ability to fight well doesn't like stay in the genome and like correspond to me. It's like, no, I may be a horrible fighter and I may not know what to do. You know, like, no, that's not generational. And then second of all, it's like that's just um, that's just a genuine lack of ignorance about the region in that like. No, there hasn't been thousands of years of fighting. There's been periods that are intricately mixed up and there's been periods of war and there's been periods of peace just like anywhere else. And it's like to say that like, everyone's been fighting for thousands of years, like that's just a cop out, man. It's like, I can point to like years and decades and um, millennia that like there actually hasn't been any fighting in the region. It's been pretty small. So you have this whole history mixed up in everything. Right. And then you have the guns that are part of this history. And, you know, from, so you have this, you know, tradition of, you know, gun making and craft assembly and craft production from the 1800s, you know, you even have it into, you know, 1840s, first Anglo-Afghan war, and then you have it continuing. And then, but things really start ramping up, especially in, you know, the Raj controlled areas of Pakistan, you know, the, the British controlled areas and the federally administered tribal areas, um, or the Northwestern frontier front. Um, with a lot of the Pashtun and Afridi tribes that are there. And you have this British attempt at gun control at wanting to, you know, outlaw firearms. So a lot of the Pashtun tribesmen were like, well, we're going to we're going to start making our own. And what's fascinating is that like everyone puts this spin on the Khyber Pass copies. Right. And they're like, well, they're just copying guns made in made in the Europe or the United States. And it's like they are, but the difference is locally it's, it's so, okay. So this is the sort of get, getting into sort of anthropology. Um, you have the emic and the etic perspective of, you know, what is, what is the local perspective on this thing? And what is the outside perspective on this thing? And well, the outside perspective looking at the, from the inside in is like, okay, well, they're just copying these guns, like one-to-one replicas down to the markings and stuff. Um, and well, in the United States and in Europe, the point of a copy is to fool, right? The point of a copy is right. to chip someone into spending a bunch of money on this thing that they otherwise wouldn't spend on it. However, the indigenous perspective on this, the reason why a lot of these Khyber Pakhtunkhwa makers are building these guns is because the Pashtuns and the people who are buying them, they're not buying them because they, they're not buying them because they want a real um martini henry and you know they're being gypped with this fake martini henry no they're buying them because they can't afford the real martini henry and they want the right. next best thing which is a really close copy of a martini henry and that's why they're buying them they're not there's no sure. going on here like the the guys who are churning these guns out and selling them in the market markets it's like it's like there's no like the, there's a clear distinction. It's like this is the Darai version, um, which Darai is short for the Dara Adam Kel. And uh, if you add an E on the end of that um, in Pashtu or Dari, you know, it's adding like, well, this is, you know, this this is the connotation for this comes from that region kind of thing. Uh, Kandahari, you know, if you're a person from Kandahar, Kabuli, if you're a person from Kabul. Um, is an example in Pashtu um, or Dari. 
And if you're like, you know, for the buyers who are buying this stuff, it's like, well, this is the .ie version. And then this is the real version. The real version is, you know, two times the amount of the .ie version. Which one are you going to buy? Well, I don't have enough money to buy the real version. I'm going to buy the .ie version. And, you know, the very clear distinction among a lot of shooters and collectors in the region, um, especially like the hardcore Pakistani collectors, a lot of people who come from Islamabad or uh, Peshawar, and, you know, they'll make a very clear distinction. It's like, no, 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 no. This, I will, I do not own any Dara'i guns. In fact, my whole collection is the real deal. These are real AKs. These are real Martini Henrys. These are real either Russian or Chinese Kalashnikovs. Right. They're the real thing. Um, they're not, you know, they're not the Dara'i version. I don't buy the Dara'i version. And that's an important distinction to be made. Whereas we're looking at it oftentimes from the outside in and we're like, well, what are they doing with all these copies? Why are they making all these fakes? Right. And it's like not a fake. It's you can't afford the real one. So you get the next best thing, which is as close as you can get to the real one without, you know, shelling out for the insane price for it. Sure. Yeah. And, you know, and I think that's it's an interesting and important distinction to make talking about uh, being able to afford things. And, you know, yeah, like you said, there are collectors over there that are making distinctions, you know, no, these are genuine or these are are not. But, you know, when when you're looking at people who are, are purchasing, you know, the, the Martini Henry or even and they're making copies of Glocks and, and M4s and stuff over there, they're buying what they can afford. And it's not necessarily because they're putting it in their collection. These people are using these guns to defend their lives in some instances. And that goes back, I think, and you can correct me if I'm wrong, to uh, to putting to, to bed the misconception that all of the guns over there that they're making are crap. Uh, you know, sure, I, as with everything in any industry, you know, you, you've got some people that are making things of questionable quality. But the fact of the matter is that these people are turning out guns that people are their lives are depending on them. Uh, so, you know, why would you willingly put out a, a junk product uh, if, if you know that people are depending on them? You know, you're, you're certainly not going to have any kind of repeat business uh, or recommendations if you're making a junk gun that someone is, is coming to buy from you. So um, am, am, I, am I on the right track in, in that area? Yeah. Yeah, and yeah, exactly. And you know, people, yeah, no one's gonna buy junk, right? And that, like, like junk is junk anywhere in the world. Like, no, right, right. Like that's like everyone realizes junk for junk. It's like people aren't right. It's a universal, exactly. So, and even with that, like the caveat, like people will still buy the Dada'i stuff, and they'll be like, okay, I'm buying it. I have it. I realize it, it's only going to work for a couple magazines and I bought it with the intent knowing it's only going to work for a couple magazines. And the seller was like, yeah, it's only going to work for a couple magazines. So it's right. like, you know, it's all in that circle of yes, you know, I can't afford a Russian AK, but I can get something that looks exactly like a Russian AK, but it isn't. And yeah, it will defend me when I need it. But, you know, I don't plan on, I don't plan on, um, you know, fighting and fighting a war with this thing. It's like, if I'm going to fight a thing, I'm going to get the real deal kind of thing. And that's, so that's something like, let me tell you like something crazy. And this is the extent is, you know, sort of market dynamics and stuff in the region is that with AKs, they do this thing. The Dara'i makers from Dara are making these contraptions where they're actually taking a milled receiver AK and they're make they're, making it look like a stamped receiver on the outside. That's so cool. So it's a milled receiver, right? It starts out as a solid chunk of steel, but then they mill it out. They put, they do things like carve out, you know, fake, um, fake pivot pins and fake, um, uh, like, you know, the dimple on an AK, um, on a stamped AK, the dimple, but the magazine dimple. Yeah, Yeah. Yeah. They'll cut that out. So it'll look exactly <laughs> like a stamped gun, but it's not a stamped gun. It's, it's a milled gun. And the reason why is because the customers, there's a customer demand, right? Just like in the US, like for like, I don't know, sure. extra, like, you know, the pistol braces or. Your or just look at the the entire line of, of retro guns that have come out here in the States. Yeah. Yeah, no, exactly. Um, so. You know, that's actually the retro gun comparison is actually a perfect comparison for the Dara stuff because that's the 
reason why you buy a retro gun in the U.S. You can't afford an original like Select Fire AR-10, you know, from the 1950s because it's sixty thousand dollars. Thank you. Right. Right. But you can afford, you know, I don't know, the the eight hundred dollar Brownells AR-10. Right. So that's right. Good example there. Um. So, but. Like with these stamped things, it's like the customers, they love, they know that the milled uh, AKs are fantastic because they, they're going to hold up longer under pressure. However, they like the, they want the look of the, like sure. the Russian um, AKMs, you know, of the kind that, you know, flood that came into the country that the Afghan, that, well, the Afghan army was using in the 1980s and a lot of them got captured and then brought back into Pakistan in the 1980s. They want that that slick black look of like, you know, a stamped Russian AK kind of thing. Right. But guess what? They can't buy one because those are really expensive because the supply and demand, man, they're like freaking sure. you know, $4,000, $5,000 at this point. You know, they're a lot of money. Um, but they get one of those for a cheaper amount. So it's like, that's just an example of that kind of thing. Yeah. Yeah. That, that's uh, that's another one of those universal things, you know, people buying what they can afford, whether it's over there or over here. <laughs> yeah, yeah, no, no, for real. I mean, and then if we look at, you know, if you want to look at the actual combatant forces at, you know, what are the the, the people who are actually fighting each other? Right. The, what what are they actually using? If you look at the Taliban in Afghanistan or you look at the uh, the TTP, the Taliban party in Pakistan, um, you look at the actual combatants who are actually engaging in fighting and stuff, they're not using the Dara stuff. They're using like the Taliban. They love to use captured um, uh, American surplus that, well, American arms that were supplied to the Afghan army. They love using that. They love using captured stuff from the Afghan army. They're buying that kind of thing. They're buying the, they're buying the OG. They're buying and they're using the original stuff. They're not using right. the stuff in combat in Afghanistan. Um, and the same sort of Afghan national army and the Afghan militia groups and the Afghan police. It's like, they're not using. They're not using the Dara stuff. They're using the real deal. Um, that's an important distinction to be made there, right? Absolutely. Yeah. So let's pivot here for a minute. Uh, you you mentioned it briefly earlier, uh, but you do have a new book out, uh, and it's called "Into Helmand with the Walking Dead: A Story of Marine Corps Combat in Afghanistan." Uh, and I, I haven't got my copy yet. Uh, I'm I'm going to be getting a copy here, but I am so excited that that this book is out now. Um, let's let's delve into a little bit of a, a history lesson here. Who are the Walking Dead? Where does that nickname come from with the Marine Corps? The Walking Dead is a moniker that came out of Vietnam for f- the 1st Battalion, 9th Marines. Um, and 1-9 had been around before Vietnam. 1-9 had been around, well, I think, was activated in like the First World War and fought in the Second World War in Korea. Um, but it was Vietnam where 1-9 got its name. And it, that's actually a fascinating point because there are uh, several different stories they're pretty much folklore. I'm not going to pin my, I am not like, don't pin my name on. This is where the, <laughs> like, if you want to find out the real source of the name, like go do your own research and like figure that out and then tell me, right. I'd like to know, you know, pro- and everything. But the, the popular conception and folklore on it is that, um, um, there was an engagement in which, in which the battalion, was involved in with it with an NVA unit. And mm-hmm. one of the generals, one of the North Vietnamese generals, um, um, one of the North Vietnamese generals, one of their sons was involved in there as an officer and he was killed in that engagement. And as sort of retribution for that, uh, Hanoi, Hanoi Hanna, who was like the English language um, radio station um, in, in Vietnam, North Vietnam, came out with an announcement that said, Hey, all you Marines and sailors in the first night and the first of the ninth battalion, um, well, well, the first of the ninth regiment, um, uh, you guys are nothing but walking dead from here on out. Like you're all, you're alive now, but you're getting, you're you're all going to be dead because we're just going to wipe you guys out. Um, so that's one thing, um, that happened. And then there's another thing. I, I believe it was when one nine, like came ashore in Vietnam, there's something that where they greeted the, the Marines and sailors of one nine. It's like, Hey guys, welcome to Vietnam. You're nothing but walking dead kind of thing. And the phrase in Vietnamese is actually depot jet. 
And it's actually kind of neat because we got um, commemorative uh, Kimber 1911s on my second deployment um, with Debo Chet on the side, on the slide of the Kimber with Kimber oh, cool. department. And um, uh, it's, it's funny because, and I mentioned this before, but my uncle was in Vietnam as a Cords advisor, which was a military civilian partnership. And he actually married his translator. And now- oh, wow. Yes. So, and so I have this like half Vietnamese part of my family. Um, and I asked my aunt and I was, at one time I asked my aunt and I was like, Hey, Hua, um, you know, what, um, like, what does, what does, you know, have you ever heard Depot Chet in Vietnamese? And she looked at me and she was like, Depot Chet. It's like, Oh, you don't want to be called that, man. That means like you're <laughs> ghosts, like you're, you're alive, but you're not like, and you're walking. And I was like, Great. Oh, Maybe I shouldn't tell you that, <laughs> you know. Right, <laughs> right. That's my battalion's moniker, right? So, right. Like, either way, so regardless of the name, right? Either way, that was how the name happened. But that was separate from we we took on this huge casualty rate in Vietnam, and we want uh, according to some statistics. And this is again folklore. Like I don't actually have the Marine Corps like battalion by battalion statistical rate from Vietnam in front right. of me. But according to some statistics, the, the 1st Battalion, 9th Marines took the highest amount of casualties in Vietnam as compared to any other Marine battalion. And that mm-hmm. like that's a, that is that is clo- that is le- very legitimate in terms of the high casualty rate. I don't know if it was the highest or not, but there was a legitimate joke in Vietnam um, when I and I've met Vietnam vets who have told me like, oh, man, like one nine. That was the battalion. Like we make jokes like, oh, you're going to the walking dead. Um, like here's your check, your check, you're going to get your checking papers and a purple heart when you get, when you go there, because it's like, you're only, you're, you're eventually going to be either killed or wounded. It's just a matter of time. And right. fascinatingly enough, I was reading an account of Quezon by, um, the famous, there's a, a Vietnamese, um, well, there's a journalist who wrote, um, and he was at, he was at Quezon and I forget the book, the name of the book, but he was a really famous journalist. And he, in his account, he writes of Marines at Quezon saying, man, like it sucks being at Quezon, but it sucks even more being with one nine because they were out. They were out like in a patrol base off of Quezon. So it's like you think of Quezon as this really historic, like, you know, really horrible battle that the Marines were in. And it's like the Quezon Marines were like, dude, it sucks being here, but it sucks even more being with one nine that's out there in the boonies kind of thing. So it's like that's. Put things in perspective, right? Um, but that's just yeah. sort of a summary of where The Walking Dead came from. Yeah, yeah. I uh, there was a, a volunteer at the NRA Museum when I worked there uh, who was in Vietnam, and he was actually in One Nine. Um, and uh, he's he's got some interesting stories. And uh, not long before I left the museum, he he gave me one of their challenge coins, which is really cool. It's got a an honored place here on my desk. Wow. Um, yeah. I don't even have a one night challenge coin. <laughs> <laughs> well, you can't have mine. Um, <laughs> but uh, yeah, so it's, it is, it's a, a very interesting history um, to, to the unit, but it begs the question, you know, why, why this book? Um, well, the now, well, I started it in 2013 on my second deployment and I started writing it then. And I just kept on adding stuff to it as I went to college. And I, I hooked up with one of my buddies named Kevin Schranz, um, who was in Ohio. And he sort of tangentially parallel to me. He was interested in writing a similar book um, about his experiences in 1-9. And especially, he was really interested in writing about the patrol base he was at, Patrol Base Boldak, which was in 2013 to 14, a patrol base outside of Camp Leatherneck that his company was at, Charlie 1-9. By that time, we were in Charlie One Nine together, and I left to go to Bravo One Nine, which were I, which is where I was at in 2013. Um, and he was, you know, we contacted on Facebook. We were interested in this stuff, and you know, he was really fascinated by writing about this. And um, later on, a couple, like you know, almost a couple months later, he actually killed himself in September of 2015, and. It was at that point, like I got with his wife and I was like, hey, do you want to publish some of Shranz's writings um, with the book that I have? And she, mm-hmm. and, she really, and she was interested in that. So she actually submitted 
20 pages of what he had written and we incorporated it into the book that we have today where really it, it has um, it's the first part of the book, the last part, and then um, the chapter that talks about that second deployment. Um, it incorporates Kevin's writings in there. So it's really we really co I really co-authored this with Kevin. Um, and it was it's also a way for us to honor Kevin as well. And for Abby, uh, that's his uh, surviving widow. Um, to, and she was really she was really pleased by how it turned out too. So that was that was really more important to to really um, ha- help Abby along with this kind of thing and really get Kevin's name out there in that, in that right. space. Yeah. Gotcha. Well, that that's great. I mean, it's a, it it's a, a story that that needs to be told and. Uh, I think it's a perspective that we don't have enough of, particularly on on this most modern of of conflicts that we're in. Uh, and and I really think it's great that you were able to work in some of Kevin's writings and and honor him with that because it it helps bring to light uh, a lot of the the inner demons and the struggles that that some of the guys went over there came back with that uh, we we don't give enough due to. Um, so uh, I'm I'm pleased that that you were able to incorporate it, and, and I'm and I'm sure his his widow's very happy as well. Um, looking forward to to reading the book. Well, we're looking forward to getting it sent out to you, man, for sure. Absolutely. So let's pivot back to to guns here. Let's let's wrap things up with uh, the the most important and pressing question uh, that you will get asked in this entire interview. Oh man, what's your favorite gun? <laughs> Close. Uh, what what arms designer, past or present, would you want to meet, and why? Oh dang, man! Right? See, oh. we're getting getting deep here, man. Getting real deep. Dude, that caught me out of left field. <laughs> man, it's not anywhere near as easy as what's your favorite gun. Yeah, yeah, yeah. That's not. Yeah, yeah. You got the you got the questions for sure, man. See, I told you, hard hitting, man. This is real journalism. (laughs) Yeah. Do you know, you know, the gun, like the gun, the designs that I'm more, you know, I think of Ferguson. I like that, just like boom, like projectile vomit, Ferguson, right there. Patrick Ferguson, who designed, you know, the the Ferguson um, um, screw breach. Yeah. Oh, man. You know, and here, you know, this is the thing, like, as I think, as, as we study small arms more and more, the, you know, it's not the successful designs that I'm fascinated by. It's the designs that didn't make it that I'm fascinated by. Because, uh-huh. it, you know, the more you study these things and you more, the more you see the differences between, you know, why, why one design was more successful than another. And it's like, you really get into the weeds on this stuff. And it's like, it's like, you know, you, and you really find out the more fat, the more fascinating parts of these stories are really, are really the points of, you know, and are the, are those moments where you realize, you know, why one design beat another one out really came, almost came down to like a flip of the coin and just came down right. to like politics and metallurgy and, you know, specifics and egos and stuff like that. And sure. You know, and like that to me, like that is the more interesting aspect of small arms of the history of small arms design. Not, not the successes. Like, I don't know. It, it's almost like I want to say, like, who cares about the successes? It's like they were successful. It's like it's like everything is explained, right? It, it, everything right. falls into place. And M one, you know, and Grand had his thing, and he submitted it, and you know, Springfield Armory dug it, and you know, boom, boom, boom. And it was, it was the best, you know, semi-automatic rifle, World War II, happy days, like, cool. Okay. Like, but why, but how did we get there? Yeah. You know, exactly. It's like, what was, why did it, why did it happen? You know, and it's like the, the failures along that are more, are more interesting. And I mean, if we look at stuff like, like the M14, it's like that abortion of a rifle that should never have been adopted. It's like, and it comes down to like stupid egos at Springfield Armory and whatever that guy was, Studebaker or something. Um, But I think Ferguson is, you know, it's, and for me, it's like, when I look at small arms designs that are, they are so far forward, they're so far forward with their thinking and, you know, their design. And it's like the hall rifle. And it's like, dude, it's like, man, you had everything. 
you had everything here. It was an amazing design. It's like you had it going. You had a, a successful breech loading design in, you know, out of Harper's Ferry in the 18 teens or whatever, or 1820s, you know. Yeah, John Hall's one of my heroes. <laughs> yeah, exactly. And, you know, with Ferguson, it was like, dude, you had you had a technology. Well, okay, well, first of all, it wasn't Ferguson's technology. The idea right. of, you know, a breech loading screw open um, rifle, it's like – that had exist. We have examples of breech loaders from the 1500s. We have King Henry. You know, he used to hunt, and he his bodyguards had breech loaders. And the idea of a breech loader was there. You know, and the idea right. of the screw open it was there. Ferguson did not reinvent the wheel. There, he wasn't this technological genius that came up with the screw open. Um, you know, the screw open breech loader overnight. It's like no, that existed. It existed in hunting technology. It existed in you know the late 1600s and the early 1700s. It was a thing. There's a lot of French designs that went over it. The difference was the forward. The, the the genius that Ferguson was was that Ferguson saw the potential in you know he, not only because it's one thing to see a potential, but it's another thing to actually utilize it. Right? I mean, I mean, we can sure. all, we all see the potential of plasma rifles. Okay, like okay, but when are we going <laughs> to get plasma rifles phased in? You know, to the infantry. It's like that's that's a big leap right there. You right. Know? Right. So, um, and, but Ferguson both at once saw the potential and he used it in his, his unit of whatever the green, they wore that green uniform. Um, and, and the thing with Ferguson is like, he was up against all these egos in the British army that were like, no, no, no. Like you can't use it. Like, this is like, you know, you can't, you can't, you can't do this. You can't make precision well-aimed shots from a concealed position on the enemy. It's like, that, that, how, you can't do that it's like you have to get up in this stupid red line and march towards the enemy and ferguson was like no dude we can be a right. lot more effective doing this other thing so i think ferguson ferguson would be just a designer that i'd re that i really want i would really want to meet um, absolutely in in that way and, and you know he was killed at the battle of green mountain in whatever north carolina in north or south carolina and it's like like dude and his his whole like his whole uh concept just died with him when he was killed yeah. in battle and it's like dude you had something so like phenomenal in small arms design but it more in actually more implementation because it was more his vision of implementing this technology that worked out better so i don't know that's right I think that's someone who I'd really want to meet, like Patrick Ferguson. I'd I'd want to just ask him, like, dude, what were like those ego battles that you, those ego battles that you were that you were going through and like and stuff like that. And I don't know. So that's it's it's the failures that are more interesting to me than the successes. The successes successes laid bare and open. Everyone knows why something is successful, but people don't know right. why something failed. Right. Right. Yeah. I mean, that's we, we often look at stuff, you know, with with the benefit of hindsight, you know, and we look at some of these design ideas and we go, well, yeah, of course, that that didn't work. You know, they didn't take into consideration X, Y or Z and why, you know, and that's why it failed. You know, but they don't know that at the time. You know, you, you, you don't know unless you try. And Ferguson didn't know. So he tried, you know, and, and that. There are a lot of designs that never made it off paper, and and he was fortunate enough, you know, to to certainly get it off paper. But, uh, you know, like you said, his his untimely death led to the demise of the concept, and it's one of the many what ifs uh, and what could have been. But it's it allows us to look at, you know, nothing exists in a vacuum, and and all of these arms designers are standing on the shoulders of the generations that came before them, and and it's important to note that they're standing on the shoulders of those who succeeded and those who failed. Yeah, uh, you know, because because there's that great line. It's like you know, uh, sometimes uh, sometimes your your life is is the the purpose of your life is to be that lighthouse to guide other people away from the rocks that you ran into, so that they don't run into them themselves. That's good. Uh, Good and that's state. what you can learn from the failures, you know, and, and it, it all benefits. You benefit just as much, if not more, from that as you do from the successes. Uh, and Ferguson is is a great example of that. So I, I love that that's who you chose. Uh, and uh, spoiler alert, that's also who Jonathan Ferguson chose. Oh, man. 
that's not oh man that's like two guys in a row. <laughs> yep exactly and that's so you know uh, and unfortunately he, he he made sure to point out unfortunately uh jonathan ferguson is no relation uh to patrick uh, much to much to his chagrin but yeah, um yeah. So, so so you're in good company uh patrick ferguson's well represented here um so that's cool i'm i'm glad you chose him uh, he, he is an underrepresented person uh, in, in the arms design community. And I wish his name was better known. Yeah. Oh, absolutely, man. Awesome. Well, Miles, I, I really appreciate you coming on and, and talking with us. We've covered a, a lot of ground here uh, and, and there's a lot of stuff going on. Um, but as always, you know, we've we've barely scratched the surface. I know that, you know, you and I could talk for hours and hours and hours and 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 come nowhere near the end of, of what we're trying to discuss. But alas, all good things must come to an end. Uh, and uh, I really appreciate you being here and uh, hopefully we can we can have you back sometime. We can we can steal some more of your time um, and we can have you on here again. Um, but, Miles, thank you so much. Thank you, man. It was a pleasure and an honor to be on here. And uh, this has been really fantastic. Absolutely. Thank you so much. Again, that was Miles Vining with Silab Report. If you're interested in learning more about the work being done by Miles and the rest of the crew over at Selaw Report, you can visit them at selawreport.com. There will be a link to their website in the description below. I really appreciate you tuning in to this episode. Before you go, make sure you're subscribed on your favorite platform and share this with someone that you think might like it. Thanks for everything. Hope you enjoyed the episode. I'll talk to you again real soon.